Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messina. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're with Mimi Roca, the former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and current candidate for Westchester County District Attorney. She also serves as Pace Law School's Distinguished Fellow in Criminal Justice and a legal analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. Mimi, welcome to Miranda Warnings. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great having you. Thanks for being with us. I know you have a, a full plate. You've got a lot of titles and a lot of roles, and all of which are very prominent. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your time as uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York, where you uh, served from 2001 to October of 2017. You, you served with some uh, very distinguished leaders of the Southern District of New York. And uh, let's talk a little bit about just uh, how you started there. Mary Jo White was the uh, led the, the 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 attorney's office, U.S. Attorney's Office. Then in 2001, she went on, of course, to become the chair of the SEC and and received in 2017 New York State Bar Association's gold medal. Uh, what was it like for you starting out? Uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office with Mary Jo White? Uh, it was a real honor. Um, I mean, I will never forget the day that I got the call uh, with an offer from Mary Jo White. I, I literally can still picture where I was standing and, and that conversation, even though it was so long ago. Uh, she, you know, was and is a legend in her own right. Um, and, and I was lucky enough to, to be there towards the end of her tenure, but for several years, which actually was extended a bit um, because, of course, the September 11th attacks occurred um, sort of at the, at the end of her tenure, and she ended up staying, I think, a little bit longer. Um, and it was just a remarkable time for a lot of reasons to, to be starting as a, as a federal prosecutor, both because she was there and she led the office for so long, and it had such a you know, storied history and, and reputation in, in large part, I think, because of her and because of the way in which she led it uh, with such integrity and really keeping politics out of the office, um, which, you know, to this day uh, remains an important theme. Um, and I, I, she was such a role model, not, you know, for all of us, but particularly for women um, in the office. And then, of course, the 9-11 attacks happened um, shortly after I started and, you know, it really just um, highlighted the sense of duty and patriotism and privilege to be doing that job at that time and feeling like we were, we were really serving our country at a time when um, we needed it, you know, the most. Yes, you know, you raise an interesting issue that I, I think is relevant to what's going on today where you talked about, you know, the, the independence, certainly, and the keeping politics out of it. Um, what, tell us a little bit about what the, you know, the, the mentality was at the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in that regard uh, when you started and during, you know, the better part of your tenure there. Well, I mean, look, I'm, I'm fortunate to say that because I was there for 16 and a half years, I served under um, Republican presidents, Democratic presidents, 
Uh, I served under several different U.S. attorneys, starting with Mary Jo White, um, acting U.S. attorneys along the way. Um, Pre Perara was the one that I uh, was fortunate enough to serve under the longest for, for the, the last, uh, I believe it was seven and a half years. Um, but the thing that remained consistent, you know, whether we're talking about Democratic administrations, Republican administrations, uh, U.S. attorneys appointed by both political parties, acting U.S. attorneys, was that they're really, truly, um, and I don't know how to emphasize this enough, was, was as little political um, influence as possible on the office. And so I think in part when we talk about, you know, the, people jokingly say the sovereign district of New York and talk about its independence, part of what that is meant to capture is that decisions in that office from the top down were made based on the law, the facts, what was the right thing to do, what just how justice would best be served and not you know, based on what um, an elected official wanted done, what would hurt an elected official of one party or the other. I mean, they're, they're obviously, you know, not that nobody thought about the consequences, but you didn't bring or not bring an investigation or a prosecution because of those reasons, um, you know, because of those in type of influences. And especially as, as someone, you know, having been a federal prosecutor now, um, hopefully going into... Uh, you know, a, an elected position as a prosecutor. Uh, it, it's just, it's such an important concept um, to keep in mind because politics and criminal justice really should not mix and don't mix well, um, or, you know, as, as, as much as humanly possible. Right. And, you know, in speaking with uh, other people, uh, uh, attorneys who've served as in, in uh, uh, attorney, U.S. attorneys' offices, uh, whether in the Southern District or, or elsewhere, it just seems as though the mentality is we don't even think about politics. We don't think about whether someone is a Democrat or a Republican or a friend or not a friend of some politician. It's just how do we do justice? And what is, you know, what can we do here? Is there a crime that we need to, to prosecute? It doesn't even come in the picture when you're talking uh, to most U.S. attorneys. Well, let me ask you, during your time, I mean, did you see a lot of, you said you served under Republican and Democratic presidents and obviously Republican and Democratic attorney generals. Um, was there a lot of influence uh, during that time by the attorney general trying to, you know, uh, control or influence what was going on in the Southern District of New York from 2001 through, you know, the beginning of 2017? So look, I mean, I have to first give the caveat that for most of that time, you know, I was a line assistant, I was, I was a unit chief, I was chief of the organized crime unit, and then I was co-chief of the White Plains Division, but I was certainly not, you know, the person that someone from the Attorney General's office would have uh, been calling or reaching out to if they did want to try to influence something. So, but, right. but with that caveat, I still feel comfortable saying that, um, you know, nothing, there was no um, kind of influence of the type that, frankly, I think we're seeing now uh, with the Attorney General. 
Right. Um, I mean, but and at the time, uh, you know, you're working on cases and there could have come a time where, you know, the head of the uh, U.S. attorney's office says, you know, we're going to do this. I know we had a different plan. We're going to do this. And you say, well, right. why? And you say, well, we got to, you know, we were told to do this by, uh, you know, the attorney general of the United States. I mean, I'm, I'm no, guessing I mean, that I, that didn't yeah. happen. No, no. I mean, there was no hint of that. I mean, obviously, with different attorney generals, there were different priorities of the department that were emphasized, right? Sure. Um, you know, that was the thing that that was com- a common occurrence with every changeover, um, you know, where drug crimes took more prominence, uh, were, were emphasized more in certain administrations, civil rights prosecutions were emphasized more in other administrations, seeking, you know, their, each attorney general had a memo named after them uh, that sort of talked about their principles of prosecution and sentencing. Um, and for example, the Holder memo, you know, talked about not always seeking the highest sentence and not always um, bringing the highest possible charge, but, but with sensible guidelines about that. Um, whereas, you know, the, the memo, the Ashcroft memo before that had, you know, largely said things kind of the opposite of that. So those kinds of policy differences were common right. and expected and permissible. And, you know, every president has the right um, and, and attorney general to, to set the priorities of their administration. But in terms of influence about particular cases, um, I certainly was not aware of it occurring. And in fact, firmly believe um, and have the feeling that to the extent anyone might have tried that or, um, you know, it, it, it was it was so um, kind of forbidden in, you know, even if not legally speaking, it was just known that, that that is not something that you would do, especially in the Southern District, because you would probably get called out on it. Um, and so I think that tradition of not interfering for, certainly for political reasons, right? I mean, the department, the Southern District still reports to the Department of Justice, just like every other U.S. attorney's office. And they they do have the final say on, on certain cases, but there was never um, this feeling that things were being, you know, uh, uh, allowed or not allowed to be pursued for impermissible reasons, namely political. So, you know, what you're talking about, I I understand is, you know, general policy uh, influences that would apply to everyone. You know, we're going to pursue, as you said, you know, perhaps we're going to pursue drugs, drug crimes more than something else. But not intervening necessarily in a particular case, like like we've seen, for example, like in the in the uh, you know the uh, Michael Flynn, uh, where you know someone pleads guilty to you know to lying, and then the, the Department of Justice says you know we're going to drop the charges, or some sort of change in the uh, recommended uh, uh, punishment, uh, the time of punishment, uh, that sort of thing that we're seeing now. Um, is not something that was that was ever common before. No, and in, and in fact, you know, look, I mean, in the hearing, you know, just yesterday, Bill Barr even himself was asked the question and and had to acknowledge that he had never um, made a change of sentencing recommendation of the nature with uh, with. Paul Manafort, where, where they right. had, where they sought the, um, 
you know, and, and he claimed, well, no one, no one had ever asked me before. Um, but of course, that's exactly the point. Why was this one raised to his level? In the ordinary course and in, in my 16 and a half year career, I do not know of a case where the attorney general was asked to weigh in on a particular sentencing recommendation that was with, particularly within the guidelines and then decided, no, we should reverse that and, you know, ask for something lower. Um, and, and, and it may be because that was never raised to the attorney general level or because most attorney generals would say, well, that's not my role. Um, but the point is, why, in fact, was it? raised to his level in the first place. That's really out of the ordinary. Yes. And, and so let me tell you, let me ask you what your, your thoughts are on uh, having the attorney general, in this case, Bill Barr, uh, intervening in specific cases involving specifically political people that are allies of President Trump and intervening, trying to intervene on their behalf in for the most part, in a favorable way to them. I mean, what's your thoughts on that type of conduct by uh, the U.S. Attorney General? Well, look, I mean, that's exactly the point. I mean, the three cases that we know of, that we we explicitly, you know, have lots of reporting on and, and, and have frankly happened in public view, where Bill Barr essentially personally intervened and reversed the decisions of career prosecutors, right? I mean, yes, there's U.S. attorneys, but but these were decisions of career prosecutors, what sentence to seek uh, for for, um, uh, Manafort, uh, whether or not to prosecute and convict Roger Stone, and a jury's decision to convict him. And then Michael Flynn, again, same thing, you know, to pursue charges to which he pled guilty. I mean, the fact that it is those three men who all are not only just, quote, friends of the president, right? A lot of people describe this as, well, two tiers of justice, one for everybody, and then, you know, friends of the president. To me, it's not just the friendship part. It's the fact that they pled guilty to or were convicted of crimes that kind of at least tangentially or somewhat directly touch on the president and that they at least in in some of those cases and in some ways we know they could have possibly provided some kind of information. I'm not saying information that would have led to criminal charges. I don't know that, obviously, because we don't know what that information would be. But if nothing else, it looks like it's protecting the president from possible further exposure and rewarding them, these, these individuals, for not cooperating with law enforcement or not fully cooperating, as opposed to Michael Cohen, who, you know, whatever else there is that can be said about him, he did try more fully to cooperate and did provide information that, in fact, did implicate the president. That's how we got to uh, someone from the Southern District of New York saying in open court uh, that, you know, this individual won, and and we all knew who that was. So the two tiers of justice are not just friends of the president or not. It's people who could possibly implicate the president and didn't and are getting a reward versus somebody who did implicate him and and is, you know, gets sent back to jail. Right. Yeah. And, you know, as you said, this is all stuff that we know about. Um, that's all public, uh, very obviously 
blatant and overt. And what's uh, you know particularly scary is uh, who knows what's going on behind the scenes that 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 we don't know about. You, you mentioned. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to put a fine point on it because I mean I think I said a lot there, but but the the idea here is that what we're seeing, at least on the surface, maybe it's the tip of the iceberg, maybe it's all there is. We don't know, as you say. We're seeing the attorney general intervening in cases to reward or punish, seemingly, people who, you know, could harm or not harm the president um, in, in perfectly legal ways, right? That is that is a dictatorship. I mean, that is terrifying. That is that's what they do in totalitarian and dictator regimes. They use the justice system to reward and punish friends and foes of of the leader. Right, and and the fact that that's something that uh, is so abhorrent to uh, our people who serve in the the various U.S. Attorney's Office is what makes our country and our system of justice great and what it is. And if we lose that, we lose all of the, 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 the things that make our country and our system of justice uh, a great and above, uh, you know, other countries. Um, so it's really, you know, from what you're explaining, certainly uh, it seems it's just completely contrary to what we've experienced in the past. Now, you talked about, you know, kind of helping people. There was recently uh, an issue regarding some uh, punishment, I guess, of Michael Cohen. He was released to go to, to home confinement uh, and then uh, failed to sign a, a, a disc, uh, waiver that he wouldn't write a, uh, publish his book and then got sent right back to prison. Um, how does that happen? So, I mean, look, the case of Michael Cohen is, um, I think, a little more nuanced in this sense. So Michael Cohen was released from prison because of COVID concerns. And and the judge found that, you know, there was a substantial, I guess, due to underlying health concerns, um, that that he was really afraid of contracting it, you know, as as many people in in prison are, um, for good reason. he went out to dinner in a restaurant in New York City and was found to, you know, have done that. Presumably, if that was the only issue and, you know, uh, uh, probation, uh, the Department of Probation or, or prison said, um, you know, that, that he had done this and that was a violation of these terms of release, okay. You know, I, I mean, I, I can see that not being so controversial. The problem is they also had this clause that they have required him to sign about not writing a book that, again, would have presumably said unfavorable things about the president, and he wouldn't sign it. And, you know, that is something that, as the judge who who made the finding, Judge Hellerstein, said, I've never heard of someone having to sign a clause like that before. So it seemed like a unique uh, and special requirement for him. Um, the fact that he wouldn't do it, you know, seems within his First Amendment rights. And whether or not the return to prison was because he went out to dinner or because he wouldn't sign the book, you know, BOP, the Bureau of Prisons is saying, well, it, it wasn't about the book. We didn't know anything about that. But the problem is we're now at a place with our justice system where no one believes that. We've already right. reached the point. I mean, you're talking about, you know, our just we have reached the point 100 percent where a large portion of the country, including 
former prosecutors, former FBI agents, former intelligence officials who, who probably are inclined to give the benefit of the doubt in some ways to uh, the Department of Justice have just completely lost faith in the idea that they're making decisions objectively and not for some impermissible reason. And that's where we are, I think, with Michael Cohen. And I think that's essentially what the judge said. The judge said, how could, he, he said, he made a credibility, he said, how could I possibly believe anything anyone is saying at this point, um, right. other than this was because of the book? And, and that, I get, I mean, that's, that's right. Right. And, and that is also obviously uh, something that is terribly concerning to not only obviously to lawyers, but to, to everyone that is uh, involved in the justice system. And that includes all of us. I want to talk a little bit. I, I know you weren't there when Jeff Berman uh, headed the, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, that was right after, I think, right after you left. But, you know, uh, I, I want to hear your thoughts on, on, you know, Jeff Berman's dismissal. Um, he came in as the, a handpicked uh, uh, U.S. attorney by President Trump. He's a Republican. He had, was a contributor to the Republican Party. Um, and then, you know, apparently there was some pressure that was uh, put on him. And uh, he was summarily dismissed from that office amongst some confusion. Uh, I mean, initially, the attorney general said that uh, he was going, that he was leaving of his own accord. Turns out that uh, U.S. Attorney Jeff Berman said that's not the case. And then he was dismissed. Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts on, on that type of conduct? So here's where I'm going to I'm going to, you know, be really pointed in my word choice, because you are nice in saying confusion. And, and, and you know, look, I think a lot of, frankly, the press initially reported it that way. In my view and based on everything I've seen, I'm very confident in saying this. Bill Barr lied. It wasn't confusion. He lied. And yesterday in the hearing, he tried to dance around that and say, well, when I said that he. Uh, step down. That's just terminology. He did step down. He just didn't know it yet. That is literally how he tried to explain it. Anyone who has ever been involved in a workplace, anyone who has any common sense, frankly, knows that when someone says they stepped down, that means they did something right. voluntarily. And he got caught in that lie. I don't know how he thought he would get away with it. I think maybe he, he thought it because, frankly, a lot of times he has gotten away with it and other people in the Department of Justice have not been able to stand up and call him out on it. In this case, um, and this is where I just, you know, I don't know uh, Jeff Berman at all. I mean, I know him through, you know, colleagues who, who did work with him, um, but I really have to applaud him for doing something that in today's world is unfortunately remarkable, which is he called Barr out on the lie quickly, right? He didn't yes. wait months until he had a book to write or, or something else. He did it at a time when it mattered, like that night. And it so it had an impact. It was, no, you want, right. I didn't step down. We had a discussion. I said I wasn't going anywhere. I said, for these reasons that I believe in this office, I'm, you know, believe in my colleagues. We have important investigations. And he forced Bill Barr to then say, okay, 
then we're firing you. In fact, the president is firing you. Um, well, actually, he, he, he left that part, right? He could have stayed and sort of dug his heels in and said, only the president can fire me because of the way in which I was appointed. He, he didn't go that far. What he held right. out for was one, sort of calling him out on the lie, and two, making sure that the transition that happened happened in a normal and orderly and common way. Because what Bill Barr was trying to do was get not only Berman out of there, but his all of his um, sort of administration, the people who worked with him closely, and put in, you know, his own handpicked person, the U.S. attorney from New Jersey, who, again, I'm not disparaging him. I don't know what he knew or didn't know. But the fact that you would try to put another U.S. attorney in to sort of part-time lead the Southern District of New York um, is highly irregular. It smacks of something that, you know, they were doing to to install someone that they could control more easily um, and have more control over the office. So, Everything, so everything that Berman did was to, to highlight the, the lie um, that, that Barr told and to, to then hold out at least until Berman had to relent. I'm sorry, Barr had to relent and say, okay, we'll let your deputy U.S. attorney take over and become, well, become the acting U.S. attorney, essentially. Right. I mean, that's not the official Right, term, that's Audrey Strauss now is Audrey the Strauss, right. acting U.S. attorney. So you're absolutely, you know, correct. That whole 48-hour period was uh, just fascinating, where you, you see the attorney general of the United States issue a press release that he's stepping down, and within a few hours, uh, attorney, uh, U.S. attorney Berman says, no, I'm not. Uh, and I never said that I was. And then Barr responds and says, well, we had a conversation and, you know, I thought we were going to give you a, a, a cushy position in the Justice Department. Um, but I guess that's out uh, now because you're 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 not going along quietly, which is even uh, more troubling that, you know, in order to affect what you know, the attorney general and apparently the president wanted, uh, they were going to, you know, promise some other position in the attorney general's office. Uh, just, uh, you know, it, it, it went from, from uh, as I said, uh, and I think you correctly noted, confusing at first to, to, to worse, uh, worse than, than you, you could imagine. Uh, yeah, and, the and, and there's general, a lot of, there's a lot of details in there. I mean, we, we, we don't have to get into all of them, but like the fact that they were suggesting and offering, trying to offer uh, Jeff Berman another job, high powered job, but very different from being the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York also shows, you know, they weren't, they weren't trying to sort of eliminate or get rid of Berman because he's incompetent or not good at, you know, his job in the sort of traditional ways because then you wouldn't be offering him, you know, head of the SEC or whatever the other right. jobs they were offering. You would just say, you're not, you're not good. We're, you know, we're firing you. Okay. But obviously there were other motives going on. And then the person right. they were trying to install had no criminal experience whatsoever. Um, right. So there, there's just a lot going on there. I think we still don't know, you know, we know a lot more now at this point, thanks to Berman and thanks to the hearings yesterday 
but we still don't really know exactly, you know, was it just kind of a general, like, we're not feeling like we can really control this Berman guy in the Southern District of New York, which I think had been a growing, we've been getting that from reports, you know, kind of over the past couple of years, or, you know, was there something more specific about particular one or two or more cases that they felt they had, you know, were losing control over? Right. Yeah. No, it was, it was clear that it wasn't because of, uh, you know, the quality of his work. Uh, right. uh, and in fact, he, he may have been doing too good of a job. Uh, I, <laughs> exactly. You, you know, it, and it's, it is, I'm sure it's very humorous to anyone who's worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office that they were contemplating putting someone to head the, the uh, Southern District of New York with a part-time position. Which right. it's a you know it's a it's a twenty four hour a day job seven days a week and then you're still not doing everything you want to do but exactly. uh, you know we'll just we'll just make it a part time spot for now um, and you know Jeffrey Berman held on and said I'm not leaving until it was uh, you know announced that his deputy Audrey Strauss was going to um, continue the work of the office and uh, I think that was when he felt that it would, you know, he would be able to move on comfortably. Um, so, yeah, that's, I, I appreciate your insights on that because it's all very fascinating stuff to view from, you know, from the outside. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, election, elections and voting. There's a, there's a lot of issues about, you know, mail-in ballots now that we're in, in COVID. Um, and there's a lot of concern about how we're going to have our elections in November. Uh, you were recently, uh, you know, successful in the primary. There was a long period after the election where there were mail-in ballots being counted. Uh, tell us a little bit about the experience that you had uh, during that time period and, you know, any thoughts you have on how uh, this might play out in the general election. Not for you, but just for our country. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. So, um, you know, uh, it, was about, it was about three weeks, maybe a little more, um, between the time of election day, uh, June 23rd, and then the day in which they sort of officially called my race. Um, and there were, there were other races going on as well, congressional um, and others. So for me personally, I will say, because our showing on election day was so strong, um, I believe it was 67%. We, we had won on in-person voting uh, on election day and early voting. You know, I, I was, during those three weeks, I was not sitting on pins and needles. I mean, I felt right. I was not taking it for granted. We knew things could change. And mail-ins were certainly less predictable this year than in other years. But I was, I was reasonably comfortable with our lead. There are other races that were happening where it was very, very close. And for three, over three weeks, people were on pins and needles. And I think that's important to point out because, you know, whoever people want to win in November, that, that candidate better win by, uh, you know, a, a very big margin or we're going to be on pins and needles for what could be even longer than, than three weeks because it will come down to those absentee ballots, right? The, even here in Westchester County, we went from about 5,000, I'm estimating, but around 5,000 absentee ballots, I think in the uh, last countywide election, to um, 
over, I think it was over 60,000. Um, so there was a lot of absentee ballots, a lot more, understandably. But I think there also were a large number of people who voted in person and they had so scaled back. And by, by they, I mean, the Board of Elections um, had so scaled back the number of um, polling sites that then there were very long lines at the polling sites, uh, much longer than there had been in previous years. People were waiting up to three hours in 90 degree heat. You know, so, so there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that. But yeah, we're going to have more in-person voting. But you know what? We can't assume that there's going to be low turnout, um, even where absentee ballots are more broadly allowed, uh, that there's going to be low voter turnout, especially now as some areas come out of the sort of immediate COVID uh, extreme crisis. And so, you know, they have to prepare for both. It seems to me that in general, you know, voters really want to be heard this year, Democrats at least. I mean, this was a Democratic primary. So they, you know, they were getting their absentee ballots in. They were showing up, waiting in line for three hours. They, I mean, they, they really want their voices to be heard right now. And that, that's encouraging, you know, if, if you're part of the Democratic Party, for sure. Um, but you have to give that opportunity and make sure that people have those avenues to be heard. Um, I think that, you know, the, the absentee ballots, there was a lot of confusion, and, and I've heard about this in other um, jurisdictions, about, you know, the postmark and when it had to be postmarked. But if it was pre something that was sent out by the Board of Elections, then it wouldn't necessarily be postmarked because it already had um, the stamp the paid for it. And so they wouldn't necessarily postmark it. And so they didn't know when it was sent. So those are a lot of sort of technical issues that need to be figured out um, ahead of time. And, you know, I hope, I hope there's lots of lawyers out there um, working on that already. Um, but, you know, my takeaways were that there was a large participation in this election. Um, our, our absentee ballots ended up very much following what the in-person voting had been, but just in really large numbers. And so actually like my margin went up even more once the absentees were counted. Um, but, you know, there is going, there, there will be a delay. I mean, it, it's very unlikely that we will know um, on November 4th who won for sure. And right. unless it's by a big margin, we really won't even know unofficially. So so the reason for the delay uh, in your case, and, and I'm guessing others, was that, you know, you had 60,000 mail-in ballots when you usually had about five. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was two things. One is they had, by law, at least here in New York, they had to wait seven days after the election before they could even open uh, the ballots because, oh. um, you know, to allow them to sort of arrive, right, and allow for delay. So they that was percolate. seven days of it. They need to percolate yeah. a little, yeah. But then even once they could open it, there was delay because not in my race, but in other races, there were challenges. And so some of those had to be worked out and you had to have observers there for looking at each ballot. Um, and then, yeah, just the volume to go through. Um, so I think it's, it's, it was all of those things combined. I could see it being a real concern, uh, perhaps in the uh, presidential election, if we have some states that are close, because those uh, electoral uh, delegates are going to have to vote, uh, I think, at the beginning of December. And so, you know, a three-week delay 
uh, in a close race is going to brush up right against when the, those uh, electoral college delegates have to, have to have to vote. And I could see that being uh, a concern for us. Yeah, no, it, it, it's concerning. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not plugged in with this network, but I I, I hope and, and assume that, and I hope this is naive, that there is a, a, a team of election lawyers out there preparing for this. Right. Well, Mimi Roca, I thank you for your service uh, as a former U.S. attorney. I thank you for your time with us here on Miranda Warnings. We've been talking about some very serious topics. We have a more lighthearted feature, music book or movie where you can share with us something that helps you get through this uh, lockdown? Well, uh, am I allowed to say my dog, <laughs> which is not your a movie? Dog, or... <laughs> I guess your dog. What's your dog's name? <laughs> my dog is Ace. I, I, I literally don't think my family would have survived um, quarantine without our dog. That That is a big conclusion we came to. But um, I mean, I, I've watched a lot of good things, um, even in the midst of a campaign. Um, uh, I watched actually the Hillary Clinton documentary on Hulu, okay. which I found fascinating. Even having lived through it, I still learned a lot. Um, and also, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it, but the um, documentary about the ERA, it's Miss America, I think it's called, um, Mrs. America. Okay. Um, just fascinating. Um and again, something I thought I, you know, sort of knew about. Um, it's about Phyllis Schlafly and just really, really interesting. So great. So uh, watch Netflix and get a dog. <laughs> exactly. That will get you through anything. So Mimi Roca, good luck to you. Thank you so much for, for your time with us here on Miranda Warnings. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.